Welcome. It's February 7th, 2022, and you're listening to the Caravan Podcast, a venture of the Herbert and Jane Dwight Working Group on the Middle East and the Islamic World at the Hoover Institution. The Working Group publishes research and commentary on the Middle East with questions for U.S. policy, and you can find our work at www.hoover.org caravan. I'm Cole Bunzel, a fellow at the Hoover Institution and member of the Working Group, and today I am joined in conversation with my friend, Ayman Atamimi. How are you doing, Ayman? I am very well, thank you. How are you, sir? I'm great, thanks. So for those of you who do not know who, who he is, Ayman is a British scholar and analyst of Iraqi origin, who is very well known for his work on Islamic militant groups in the Middle East, particularly in Iraq and Syria. He's written extensively on the Islamic State, Al-Qaeda and its affiliates, some of the lesser known Sunni militant groups, as well as the full gamut of Shiite armed groups in this region. He's very much someone who has his ear to the ground. He travels to Iraq and Syria. He's a close observer of these groups' media, and he has even talked to and interviewed some of these groups' members and supporters. So we're very fortunate to have Ayman with us today to break down what was a key development that occurred last week regarding the Islamic State, or ISIS. I'm talking, of course, about the death of the group's leader, Abu Ibrahim al-Hashami al-Qurashi, better known in U.S. government circles, at least, as Haji Abdullah. So on the morning of February 3rd, President Joe Biden announced that U.S. Special Forces had conducted an operation to capture Haji Abdullah in the town of Atma, near the border with Turkey in northwest Syria. The pre-dawn raid involved multiple helicopters and some two dozen special operators who approached the apartment building where the Islamic State leader was living with his wife and children. The leader then detonated a bomb, killing himself and his family. This was on the third floor, the top floor of the building. On the second floor, just below, U.S. Special Forces engaged and killed an Islamic State lieutenant and his wife. According to U.S. officials, 13 people in total were killed during the operation, and there were no U.S. Ca casualties. The now deceased leader, who was most commonly known, as I noted, uh, as Haji Abdullah, and that's how I'll refer to him, he was an Iraqi national of about 45 years of age. He was the successor to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, is the group's so-called caliph, Baghdadi having died in a similar raid in a similar part of Syria back in October 2019. Unlike his predecessor, however, Haji Abdullah was not a household name. He gave no speeches, he never showed his face. Nonetheless, his death marks a, a critical moment in the history of this organization. So Ayman, uh, turning to you now, I want to get into the implications of this man's death for the Islamic State, both in Iraq and Syria and beyond. But first, let's focus in on the man himself in the area where he was killed. What can you tell us about the man known as Haji Abdullah? Uh, how important was he, do you think, to the group's functioning? Well, what we do know about him prior to his becoming the supposed caliph of the Islamic State is that he was um, effectively uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi's deputy. Um, he had actually also, prior to uh, Baghdadi's death, uh, that there was talk about his being the successor, uh, the most likely successor to Baghdadi. So I remember... There was one interview that Al Arabiya broadcast with a high-ranking member of uh, Islamic State who'd been captured by the Iraqis, and he did say the most likely successor, I think, would be uh, Al Hajj Abdullah Kardash, um, and uh, also which is also known as Haji one of one of, yeah. one of uh, Haji Abdullah's uh, nick, uh, nicknames. Yes, 
Um, also, uh, there had been that fake announcement circulated on social media talking about uh, uh, supposedly that Baghdad had delegated all matters to uh, to Al Hajj Abdullah Kardash. Um, I just want to talk a little about his uh, his background. Um, that uh, I mean, his real name is Amir Muhammad Said Abdurrahman Al Mola. Um, the Kardash name that is uh, one of those nicknames attached to him, Al-Hajj Abdullah Kardash, Abdullah Kardash, whatever. Um, Kardash is Turkish for brother, and it's used uh, in Islamic State's internal parlance to refer to uh, Turkmen members of uh, the Islamic State. There was actually a... Um, uh, someone who was an emni or security guy in uh, Islamic State who defected. He was from Al Baaj, which is in southern Nainawa province. Uh, he's an, of Arab ethnicity. Uh, he did actually men he mentioned this issue of of the Kardash code name. But um, so and these these are Iraqis Turkmen. These just Iraqi Turkmen, correct? Yeah, Iraqi Turkmen. Um, of course, the main concentrations of Iraqi Turkmen are. Firstly, in northern Nainawa province, uh, and this is actually where Al Mola is from. He's from a town called Al uh, Mahallabiya, um, and he was born there in uh, 1976, according to the records, the authentic records we have, both interrogation reports and also um, uh, some of his Iraqi ID documents that were found. Um, the other concentrations of Turkmen, of course, are in Kirkuk. Um, there was, of course, speculation that um, given the fact that he was Turkmen, that this meant that, well, how could he be the caliph and why does he have this Qurashi name attached to him? Right. The caliph, uh, just to explain to people who don't know, is somebody who, according to Islamic law, is supposed to descend from the prophet's tribe of Quraysh. Yes. And presumably, if he was Turkmen, he would not have that lineage. Well, the interesting thing, though, is that Iraqi Turkmen... Uh, uh, they're, they're, the way you define someone as being Turkmen uh, is complex. Either you can say, well, the person is ethnically Turkish, came from Turkey, came to Iraq at a later, po at a later point, or is Turkmen by language. And my understanding, actually, uh, uh, from the, uh, the northern Iraq context, Tel Afar area, Mahalabiya, and so on, is that a lot of the... Turkmen there are Turkmen see themselves as Turkmen by virtue of speaking the Iraqi Turkmen language, but not actually Turkmen by their racial lineage and origin. So the Molas actually from whom this guy came from came from was uh, whom uh, Al Hajj Abdullah came from was uh, uh, actually uh, considered Arab ethnically. Uh, I actually remember speaking to someone who worked in the uh, local Iraqi police about the Mola. It says that we're Arabs, but also at the same time we're Turkmen by virtue of the language. And actually, uh, one of um, uh, it seems actually that one of um, Al Hajj Abdullah's brothers uh, was called Amr. Uh, he was actually apparently uh, an Iraqi Turkmen uh, activist and official, and he, he was actually killed in. Um, he was actually killed in Mosul in uh, 2011. Um, so yeah, it's Turkmen by um, by language, but and not Turkmen by uh, by racial origin. And also, even um, uh, Abu Ali Al Ambari, who was a prominent official in um, uh, the group and who was killed in 2016, his son, who wrote his biography, said the same thing. He said, 
I can tell you that speaking the language doesn't take you being ethnically Turkish. So yeah, that's actually then the whole explanation behind this controversy that existed for some time and, and actually why the whole idea of him being a placeholder caliph wasn't wasn't accurate. Okay, so he was appointed to be the, the full-fledged caliph and he met, in your view, uh, the qualification of descent from Quraysh, at least according to... By IS uh, standards, yeah. And, uh, of course, uh, actually one of the, the Islamic State uh, defector trends, uh, actually, uh, after Baghdadi's death, uh, wrote something, wrote, one of them wrote, Abu al Masri, I think his name is, he wrote this article called The Sultan of Barisha, and he claimed, though, right. rather than attacking Kardash on his um, lineage uh, claim, and she said, oh, actually, it's well known he's got an amputation in his right leg. So how he could be here. So uh, he's, <laughs> right. So he's not um, physically suitable. The, yes, the caliph is supposed to be of sound sound of body and mind. So no missing limbs, no no missing eyes, things like that. Yes. Uh, so this, this he's, so he belonged to a, a Turkmen, a Rocky Turkmen faction within the Islamic State. Is this kind of, do you see this as an ascendant faction, something that is in control of the of the central organization of the group well they always iraqi turkmen members uh particularly from main sorry from the name in particular in talafer they'd always been prominent members of uh, the organization and um this defector from biaj actually who i mentioned uh and mentioned this issue of kardash being the code that they used to refer to each other um he mentioned i think about the ascendancy of the uh the turkmen in the in the the mo in the in the nainawa and uh uh in the wider nainawa area um and uh leading of this so-called wilayat al-jazeera which was created out of partly out of the lands of nainawa province in iraq but i would say it's too hard for us really to be honest the amount of information we have now about who's who, who are the leaders of islamic state is very very sparse we can't i don't think uh, we can really come to to strong conclusions about that one way or another i think that's a very fair assessment uh, let's turn to the town where he was killed what can you tell us about that yes why, why were why are islamic state leaders in this area to begin with yeah that's another very good that's another i think central issue behind uh, to discuss um, so Atime is a town in uh, northern Idlib province, so in northwest Syria. It's very it's right, really, effectively right on the border with Turkey, and um, also it's almost like a transition between uh, Idlib and Aleppo provinces. So effectively, uh, from the fact that Baghdadi was killed in Barisha and this guy was killed in uh, Atime, and also remember Islamic State's spokesman, uh, previous spokesman, Abu Hassan al-Muhajir, who was of uh, Saudi origin. Who could forget him, right? I mean, uh, come on. Yeah, who could forget him, yeah. Uh, he was killed in uh, Aleppo. He was killed uh, in the Aleppo province, in the areas controlled by the Turkish-backed uh, rebel factions of the Syrian National Army. Um, so effectively, Islamic State's leadership, from what we can see so far from these three cases, effectively hiding in northwest of Syria. Um, I think there are, I would say, the, the explanation for that, barring any new evidence that will come to light, which I, I don't think will in the near future, is that um, effectively the northwest of Syria, in the wider Iraq-Syria area, 
is effectively the least bad place that these guys can hide out in. Uh, reasons for that being that, um, number one, the coalition, the US-backed uh, coalition against Islamic State, doesn't have an active ground presence in these places. And the, the primary forces that control these areas in northwest Syria, so in the case of Atmer, where um, uh, Hajj Abdullah was killed, it was the, uh, it's under the control, effectively, of Hayat Ahir al-Sham. Uh, uh, and HDS explain HDS whose ultimate origins go back to Islamic State of Iraq one of Islamic State's predecessors but broke off first from in 2013 and pledged allegiance to Al-Qaeda and then broke off from Al-Qaeda in the 20s by by, uh, January of 2017 and what was Jebet al-Nusra became Hayat Tahrir al-Sham um it's the group that controls most of Idlib province, most of Idlib right? Of Iran's, but and it's per, it perceived as now by the jihadis now perceive it as a kind of effectively an ally of Turkey. Yes, yes, almost like the Syrian National Army factions controlling uh, that strip from Azaz to Jarablus, where um, Abul Hassan Haji was killed. But my point being that these these groups in the northwest, um, as opposed to say the Syri- the areas controlled by the Syrian Democratic Forces and the Iraqi forces in Iraq. Uh, uh, Syrian Democratic Forces in eastern Syria. I mean, those forces are primarily focused on fighting Islamic State and conducting Islamic State counterinsurgency operations. Of course, they will be looking actively for any Islamic State leaders who are out there. And with coalition existence, it won't, I I expect it's not too difficult to find if you're the Islamic State leader. I expect it will not be too difficult to find you. Also, I mean, I've been to, say, for example, eastern Syria, right? It, it's uh, it's flat plain. It's not some it's not some place full of mountains or uh, terrain where you can hide. It's very flat, and so yeah, you're hiding. Your options to hide are are are, uh, are not so great there. Now, in contrast, in northwest Syria, uh, the factions there they're not primarily engaged in counter Islamic state operations. They do have security apparatuses who will be looking for islamic state operatives islamic state cells if they can find them but it's uh they also have their own concerns i mean for instance the syrian national army they're focused on fighting the sdf and maintaining front lines of syrian government forces hts as well similar thing perhaps also looking for collaborators with the syrian government in idlib and its environs so they do. So again, it's not a great option to be in northwest Syria, but it's one of the least bad. And then the other key point, I think, regarding northwest Syria, which they distinguishes it from a place like um, eastern Syria, um, is the fact that actually in many of these places, internally displaced people who've come from various parts of Syria, actually mm-hmm. now in many places i mean certainly in atmir it would seem they outnumber the original local inhabitants um and so i think as a result of this you have a mass of people in northwest syria who effectively don't know each other and will affect i think prefer to keep themselves to themselves and uh so yeah so one of the details i keep reading is that the family that lived on the first floor of this apartment building presumably had no idea that the leader of isis was living two floors above them yeah or that uh, apparently the guy who rented out didn't know he was renting out a place <laughs> right. the islamic state leader i i think that's and i think the islamic state leader probably just he probably 
again, barring the evidence, just kept either in the house or didn't go much beyond it. I mean, he wasn't going all around Idlib say, uh, <laughs> to conduct various affairs and business. I, I think he, uh, so people keep to themselves. Lots of displaced people don't know each other. Less effective, I think, security apparatuses in contrast, say, with the SDF and the uh, the Iraqi forces. Um, uh, not great comparisons, necessarily, but... Um, so, yeah, it, again, I reiterate, it, it's just barring, unless we find some, some new evidence right. coming tonight. Well, speaking of the um, new possible evidence, I, I want to get your take on a couple of conspiracy theories that I, I have seen floating around. One, one is that HTS, this formerly to simplify things, the former Al-Qaeda affiliate uh, in northwest Syria that controls Idlib province, it was secretly harboring uh, Haji Abdullah. I'm very skeptical of that. And the other uh, conspiracy that I've seen, which comes from our uh, security partners in northeastern Syria, the, the Kurdish-dominated uh, militia, the Syrian Democratic Forces, I've seen their spokesmen accusing Turkey of having had a role in in the harboring of, of, of Haji Abdullah. What do you think of, of these no, kinds of I don't think I don't think either of those are true. I mean, if if HDS, so I remember when Baghdadi was killed. I think I remember. I think when one of the leaders in HDS was saying that he just regretted that HDS didn't get to kill this guy or capture him. Right. So I, I think I think my view is if HDS had known he was there in Atama, it really just it would have been uh, what a great coup for HDS to say to the world. We're not a terrorist organization. We captured the leader or we killed the leader of uh, Islamic State. I mean, and also, I mean, in fighting Islamic State, they themselves don't, don't uh, have to justify it to their base as saying, we're, we're doing this to please the West. They can say to their base, we're doing this to crack down on the Khawarij uh, who mm -hmm. disrupt uh, the internal security in, uh, in Northwest uh, Syria. I mean, as the reason they've arrested, for instance, a lot of Al-Qaeda operatives and other... Right, there's no reason to believe that they would be in cahoots with ISIS. No, That's... no. And what about what about Turkey? No, no, Turkey as well. I think if, if they'd known he was there, they they also would have, would have, would have tried to um, would have tried to arrest him. So but what does this say about our... I'm talking about the United States security partner in the SDF. This is a group that we work with, we train, and they accuse our NATO ally of kind of being in cahoots with ISIS. Yeah, they've done this for a while, and even some of their pro uh, their pro SDF outlets produced some forged documents. I remember that to try to show that IS was in uh, Turkey was secretly supporting IS. I even remember when I was in uh, was I was in northeast Syria. Uh, they they mention um, they the the SDF guys have mentioned no oh, you know Turkey smuggling uh, Turkey and its partners smuggling stuff to the to the camps to help out these IS these uh, these IS affiliated people and uh, that's partly I think why there's uh, this conspiracy mindset I think some of the is uh, influences uh, some of the sensitivity of giving researchers and journalists access to some of these camps and interviewing detainees either IS detainees or uh, women and children or families of these IS members who are in the camp still. So let's zoom out a little bit and talk about uh, how this group, the Islamic State or ISIS, uh, how effective it's it's been in Iraq and Syria. It's not a group that you know most people um, are, are following on a day-to-day -day basis. They've heard, of course, about the Islamic State attacks on, on U.S. forces during the withdrawal from Afghanistan. But how active uh, a theater is Iraq and Syria for the Islamic State currently? 
Well, I think always Islamic... I think Iraq and Syria always is going to be, as long as the group exists, the epicenter of Islamic State. It's effectively Islamic State central, quote-unquote, right? Um, and you certainly do see, on a regular basis, attacks being claimed by Islamic State uh, operatives against uh, whether it's the SDF, Iraqi forces, uh, the uh, Syrian uh, army, and um, uh, I mean, that's even occurring even after this U.S. news has come out of uh, mm -hmm. announcing uh, the American announcement of killing uh, Al-Hajj uh, Abdullah. So, uh, and claims from uh, Iraq and Syria being put out. So it's always going to remain like that. I think it's uh, the, just the big picture of it, though, from what I see effectively, it's still a low-level insurgency that I think as long as you have coalition involvement, for instance, in eastern Syria and uh, Iraq, right, it's always, mm -hmm. it's going to be, it's going to be a, some kind of stopgap that I think prevents the Islamic State from going beyond a certain point, even when you had, say, for instance, uh, this prison break, which was uh, accomplished by uh, the Islamic State in Hasaka City at Ghawayram uh, prison or Al-Sina prison, right? Uh, at that, that, toward the end of last month, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, I'm sure they got out maybe a few hundred, at least, people, uh, detainees from that, from that prison. Uh, but still, I don't see that as a momentous shift or therefore we're saying well this is 2013 all over again when they mm -hmm. go to say the Abu Ghraib prison break and it's part of their rapid ascent and uh, start taking over lots of territory only six months later in both Iraq and Syria um, so it's always going to be the epicenter um, I think that though the big picture is just this low level sustained uh, insurgency for some time I just want to go back, though, and reiterate, uh, go back to one thing, though, which is that um, in, in the northwest of Syria, they don't claim or advertise. I mean, one of the ways we try to follow what Islamic State does, a lot of it is based on what they themselves say about their operations. They never really say anything about doing things in northwest Syria. And I think given that their leaders were in that region, they could see why they don't say anything, right? Because it will draw, it will draw too much, it could draw too much attention to themselves from other, these other forces, they're these Sahawat or awakening apostates. Right, they're keeping a low profile there. Yes. Yeah. This is their, yeah. their hub. Um, so I guess the question that I have to ask you now has to do with just how big of an impact this, this um, we could call it leadership decapitation, if we like, uh, will have on, on the group going forward. It, perhaps I could put it like this, on a scale of one to 10, um, with with one being not a big deal at all and 10 being a crippling blow, how big of a deal is the loss of Haji Abdullah to the Islamic State? I'll give it something like a three or four. <laughs> I mean, look, um, good he's gone, you know, good. But um, it doesn't, um, as you mentioned in the introduction to this, uh, to this podcast, he never made any uh, media appearances for the Islamic State. He never issued an audio message. I mean, uh, the only thing the Islamic State ever had to say about him was that, oh, he was a veteran of jihad and knowledgeable. And this was in the speech that uh, their new spokesman put out announcing his, this guy's appointment as the caliph. Uh, and also he'd say sometimes, well, 
uh, to so such and such brothers in the Wilaya, ha the leader Caliph sends his greetings to you and counsels you to do this and that. Um, so, but he never made any audio appearances, uh, audio speeches. Uh, there's no official photograph of him released by Islamic State. Uh, no video appearance. So, um, despite that, though, the point being, despite all of that, the lack of this image or any kind of image, the Islamic State's operatives, both in Iraq and Syria and also around the world, they were quite willing to accept him as their leader and justify the lack of his appearance. So, what then right. stops them from announcing it as successor who's equally obscure? And then the Islamic State's uh, members around the world accepting it, right? Um, so I'm sure, so the, the, the flip side is the US, I'm sure, killing him to degaptation. And they, I'm sure they got more intel about how the group is operating its insurgency in Iraq and Syria mm -hmm. in particular. Uh, and communicating with the with the outside, and it will be probably be some time before we get information released from those from those those raids, right? But um, yeah, I I, uh, I think the Islamic State has been successful at drilling into its own membership and supporter base that uh, it doesn't matter if they decapitate our leaders, we can put in a new one, and we're still the caliphate, and uh, mm -hmm. but we still have the fighting spirit within us. <clears throat> so the way I kind of look at it is that. He might have been very much involved in in kind of calling some of the shots in particularly in the Syrian theater and maybe a little bit in, in Iraq. But with regard to the larger sort of caliphate enterprise, the so-called provinces in, in West Africa, all the way to eastern Afghanistan, um, he was not somebody who was giving advice, direction, input that really mattered to, to the daily functioning of, of those affiliates. Do you think that's, that's probably I, right? I, I agree completely with that assessment. Yeah. But, um, uh, uh, you know, say the way Islamic State operates in Mozambique and, uh, uh, in Nigeria or in Lake Chad area or in the Congo, Eastern Asia, this is, um, yeah, on the day to day basis. And, uh, it, it, mm -hmm. it's not, it's not as though Haji Abdullah is saying, launch an attack in this place, do that, do this. I mean, you give general directions, like the, the constant rhetorical call to, to free the prisoners, all right? And so that can influence mm -hmm. uh, the thinking behind launching an operation. But uh, the intimate planning and details, yeah, and how operations are conducted uh, and uh, the tactics, that, uh, I'd say it's largely in the, uh, it's in the, uh, the affiliate's own hands in these places, mm -hmm. not... Um, Right, so these these disparate wilayas or provinces, they're they're united by shared ideology. They're united by a shared sort of appeal to a uh, a nameless, faceless, faceless pseudonymous caliph um, who is now dead, and w we can assume that he will probably uh, be replaced by an equally nameless, faceless pseudonym. Um, so, what do you think um, about the kind of next potential? leader or caliph of the group do you think that that will be announced soon do you think it will be of any uh, significance is no, I, I, think, I think the announcement either comes at some time within this week or in the next week that's my prediction for most likely right when when this will this will this will happen uh and i'm sure what will happen is that the probably it'll be a repeat of 2019 that soon Soon, new release from Al Furqan Media, and will be the spokesman saying whoever, uh, whoever it is, whoever the spokesman will still be at that point saying, 
we announce uh, uh, announcing the death of the previous one and announcing the uh, appointment of a of a of a new caliph and then a call to give bayah or allegiance pledge and uh, perhaps a transcription will appear in a nebba uh, newsletter and then you'll start seeing these photo releases of the pledge of allegiance being given to the new caliph right um would actually be quite interesting if it didn't come soon that could you know speak to a larger disruption um, um it could yes um i'm very curious actually as to uh abu hem uh, abu Hemza, the spokesman that's the spokesman i mean does that it does does his Qureshi name mean that he's actually the the next in line to succeed uh, uh haji abdullah <laughs> Yeah, if I had to guess, I'd say a lot of the uh, the top tier leadership of the group have some little genealogical table uh, in their file showing, oh, I'm I descend from the Prophet's tribe too. Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's not a uh, <clears throat> yeah too too surprising. Um, but what else do you think this 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 means for for the Islamic State? Do you do you think um, a, there's going to be any 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 large um, development with regard to the group in the next couple of years, um, another leadership strike, would that indicate that, that the group is really on the ropes or, or do you see a lot more of just kind of the same? Uh, I mean, I see more of the same and I, I could see more leadership decapitations coming just because I think with this, with each successive raid, probably the intel gets better on how Islamic State's currently operating. Um, but I think, I think in the long term, though, it's still just low-level insurgency. I mean, perhaps an analogy is COVID that uh, could make as long as take an endemic problem in various countries, but it'll never go, it doesn't quite go down to zero. <laughs> yes, we, so, yeah. No one way, is, I'd say also, you could say... ISIS zero is not a, not a good policy, not a good... Zero story. is not a good policy. Uh, also, I would say that um, uh, in a way, the world to, I think someone else, I'm sure, has used this analogy, though. There's a vaccination of the world against Islamic State, as it were. That you wouldn't see... I mean, think about with the Islamic State when it rose to power in, in 2014, right? I mean, yes, Mosul, the fall of Mosul in June 2014 was often taken as the starting point. But it's easy then to forget mm -hmm. that six months before that, they'd already seized control of, of Raqqa city, right? That, and they were governing it. And they all they had pretty much almost full control of, of Raqqa province in, uh, in, in northern Syria at mm -hmm. that point. And they controlled much of northeastern Syria as well. Uh, uh, but at that time, though, there was no active U.S. intervention against it. It was, it was seen as, well, well, this is a problem of the Syrian civil war. We can, you know, it's not, not, our, not our deal. But when it... When it started having that, uh, when it started going over into Iraq and the fresh the genocide against the Yazidis, there was an active intervention. So, yeah, there isn't going to be the same kind of uh, well, we'll let them control territory for some point, and it's not mm -hmm. much of a problem. There's a, there's a there's an alert system against it, I think. In, in, yeah, in and you alluded to this to this earlier that the key role played uh, in containing ISIS by the enduring uh, U.S. commitment. Uh, to the region. Exactly. And it's, yeah. it's, it's something that, you know, I think um, is a lesson that the United States has learned uh, from just how incredible and explosive the rise of ISIS was in, in, in 2014 uh, until it was really basically destroyed between 2017 and, and 2019. Um, and there's, of course, a lot of talk in the United States about retrenchment from the Middle East, about pivoting to, uh, to Asia. But 
Um, it seems like we are here for the long haul unless we want to allow the Islamic State to revive. Exactly, think, yes. Yeah, that's that's yeah. exactly right. So one of, one of the lessons then would seem to be we wouldn't be able to, to, to take out the leader of the Islamic State uh, or like groups um, if we were not kind of forward deployed in this area. Um, and that raises questions, of course, for, for Afghanistan, where, of course, the United States uh, withdrew and we don't have that kind of forward operating presence any longer. We have what, what we like to call the over the horizon um, ability, but it's yet to be tested. Um, Ayman, I want to ask you before we leave, uh, I know you have a book coming out that is completely unrelated to what we've been talking about. Can you give us, what is this uh, book about? Yes, it's um, it's an Arabic translation and commentary I've done on uh, a book called Historia Arabum, which trans Latin work, 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 whose title translates as you my, my guess, even if you don't know, know Latin, History of the Arabs, um, was by uh, Rodrigo Jimenez de Rada, who was the Archbishop of Toledo during most of the first half of the 13th century. In, uh, in, uh, in, in the city of Toledo, Archbishop of Toledo. And the significance of the work uh, is that effectively it's the first Western book focused on Arab history. So it wasn't the first Western work that absolutely discussed Arab history in any way. I think that distinction actually goes back to some chronicles of the 8th century Spain. But uh, this is the first book about focusing on Arab history. And I thought, well, uh, it's not been translated into uh, Arabic, uh, but why, why not? Uh, I was always interested in Western perceptions of Islam in the medieval period, and I'd studied Latin at university. And so um, I, uh, you know, I, I've, uh, I translated it at a commentary and study, and hopefully it will be published um, sometime either this month or in the spring. So, well, con congratulations. It's good to have, you know, other interests apart from, from yes. yes, the Syrian civil war and the, the underworld of, of ISIS do not exactly, um, they're not exactly up, uplifting subjects. So, and I also want to just uh, let readers know that, uh, don't, if you're asking, where's the English translation of this work, there will be one coming out hopefully later this year as well, uh, as good. my second book. <laughs> Well, I speak for everyone when I say I look forward to it. Um, <laughs> Ayman Tamimi, thank you for coming on the Caravan Podcast. You can follow Ayman on Twitter at AJL Tamimi, and you can follow his work on his Substack page, aymanatamimi.substack.com, where he posts analysis and translations of primary sources related to Islamic militant groups, among other subjects, including, I believe, Latin translations of early... Uh, uh, European, period, yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, related to the Arab world. So please subscribe to the Caravan Podcast. We will be back soon for the next episode. Thank you. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.